Go ahead, please, and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We're continuing in our series this morning, again, studying through, preaching through the epistle to the Galatians. And this morning, Paul, once again, is going to be talking about an issue that's threaded throughout the letter, but he's going to be addressing, once again, this idea of freedom. Now, I know when you come in, you haven't been kind of soaking in this particular text all week. And so when I say freedom, I'm not expecting that originally or instantaneously you're going to be right where this text is, okay? So when you think freedom, what comes to your mind? If I was to think of freedom, I might think financially immediately, like financial freedom. It would be nice to have some financial freedom. In other words, freed from debt, freed to do what I need to do financially speaking, and have some money left over. Um, Freedom from the stress that not having enough money brings. So freedom financially could come to my mind. Or freedom occupationally. Some people I know would love to be no longer working for the man, whoever he is. Free to do what they want to do. Free to use their skills and their abilities the way they want to use them. Free to spend their their hours during the day doing what they want to do, not what someone's telling them to do. So that could be a type of freedom. Or we might think of spatial freedom. So we're all living extremely busy lives. And so the idea of having more time in our schedules, more space, more free time, more room, if you will, to do what we want to do, not what someone's demanding us to do, not a schedule that's constantly driving us. We want freedom in our lives in that way. Freedom, however, in Galatians is a little bit more complex and nuanced. And as we're thinking through freedom in that regard, an idea came to me from the show This Is Us, the TV drama This Is Us. Have you guys ever seen that show? So in the show, there's a couple, Randall and Beth, who adopt a beautiful girl from the foster care system. Her name is Deja. And Deja comes into the home a very conflicted young girl because Deja really loves her mom and really wants to be with her biological mother who's an addict and doesn't have a safe home where Deja can live. And so she's been thrust into the foster care system where she's been in a countless number of beds, in and out of homes, and so when she comes into Randall and Beth's home, even though positionally, She's found a form of freedom. They have a very nice home. Randall does very well for himself. He has two biological daughters that are well cared for, well taken care of. And so she positionally has come into a place of freedom. But internally, it's not like her past has been uh, erased. Internally, she's conflicted. Internally, She still longs to be with her biological mother, even though she's in a safe place with these adoptive parents. Internally, she has the struggles of being involved in the foster care system and some of the scars that have been inflicted upon her, even though now she's in a place where those those troubles are not going to touch her. She's conflicted inside. In fact, in one episode, Randall is engaging with Deja, and they're having a, a heated discussion and he goes to grab her, not, not harmfully, not aggressively, but just to, to, like a father would a daughter, to touch her. And she recoils right away. 
and she explodes. And later on, when things calm down, she says, don't you grab me like that. You can't touch me like that. Because in the former home I was in, the man of that house, whenever he reached out, he was coming to hit me. He beat me incessantly. Don't do that to me. She's conflicted. She's found spatial freedom. She's found experienced freedom in, in one sense of that word. She's found a home. She's found a family. But internally, she's conflicted. Now, I know there are a ton of nuances to adoption and foster care that I just don't understand. So I'm not claiming to know that. Here's the point of connection for me. As a Christian, I relate to that sense of freedom. Because in Christ, I really have been set free. There's been an experience of freedom in my life. But on a day-to-day basis, on a week-in, week-out basis, that's why Andrea and Megan are sharing words like they're sharing. We experience freedom. Positionally in Christ, we're free. But our day-to-day, moment-by-moment sometimes, situations and internal struggles and external decisions that are hoisted upon us, we have all these conflictions inside of us. We're struggling to live in the freedom, to enjoy the freedom, to act as if we really are free on a day-to-day basis. I find myself, in some ways, in deja. I've experienced positional freedom in Christ, but inside the battle wages on. Can you relate to that at all? That's the type of freedom that Paul is trying to address here in this text. He's trying to speak to men and women who have been set free in Jesus But their tendency, just like yours and mine, living in a broken and fallen world, is to return to things that would cause us to be enslaved. That's what Paul is addressing once again in Galatians. Let's read in chapter 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Spirit of God, would you help us right now? Would you help us as men and women who have come to experience a freedom in Jesus Christ, a freedom that we haven't earned, 
a freedom that's been given to us based on what He's accomplished. But Lord, You know that in a fallen world and in a a busy, hectic, chaotic life at times, we come into this place feeling trapped, feeling oppressed, feeling weighed down, burdened. And we really believe that in You, Jesus, is where we find freedom. In You is where we find hope. In You is where we find joy. And so I pray by the work of Your Spirit right now, taking Your Word and applying it to our lives, we would once again experience the freedom that Jesus Christ alone provides. Help us, Lord. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous, freeing truths from Your law. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, now once again, somehow I've been assigned a text that when you read it at first glance, you're like, what in the world is Paul talking about? I'm, I, I guess it's my fault. I'm the one that laid out the series and I slotted myself here, so blame it on me. But when you read the text at first glance, once again, we're like, Paul, you're going, Hagar, Old Testament, Sinai, like what? You're confusing me, dude. Once again, Paul, you're saying things that are not easily graspable. Just let your eyes scroll quickly to the first verse of chapter 5. I think this will provide some clarity. Paul writes, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the point that Paul is driving at here. He's trying to help men and women who have been set free by the gospel of Jesus to actually live in that freedom. To no longer submit to, to no longer revert back to a system and rules and laws that would cause them to live burdened and weighed down, but to actually stand up straight and to live in the freedom that Christ has bought for them. Okay, that's Paul, that's what he's driving at here. And what he's doing is he's using the Old Testament to show, listen, this has been God's plan all along. I'm not making this stuff up. This is from the Bible. So over and over, Paul quotes Scripture in this passage, and he's going back once again to this story of Abraham. So as we think about ourselves then, as we think about what we come in to church this morning, what weights we come bearing, what situations are going on in your lives, when you think about the, the weights and the burdens, whether they're self-inflicted because we've fell, fallen into sin, whether they're inflicted upon us by the sins of others, whether they're just circumstantial or situational, there's just stuff that's going on in life that's really, really hard. And no one's necessarily to blame, but man, we come in here and we're feeling this weight. Jesus reminds us through this passage that he's here to remove that from your shoulders. It's an invitation to remove the weight and burden caused by yourself or caused by others because in him and in him alone is where we truly find freedom and rest for our souls. Okay, so what does it mean to live free in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us? That's what Paul is laboring right here to try to help us to understand. And what he does is he paints a contrast. He's showing what does it mean to live under the law as children of slavery, and what does it mean to live as children who believe the gospel under Christ and live in freedom. 
So slavery and freedom are the contrasts that Paul is painting for us. Now let me just slow down for a second and address something that may or may not be wrestling internally for you right now. When I use that language, slavery and freedom, I know that that can conjure up images and emotions in some people that you can't avoid right now. Like, you're not going to be able to listen to me unless something is mentioned about that topic. In fact, some people, they'll just close the Bible right here. It repulses them because men and sometimes women have misused and justified things like slavery, racial slavery, based on what the Bible says. And I just want to say real clearly that that's not what I'm about and that's not what this church is about. And so for people of color, we are aiming, we want, we desire as a church to be a diverse church. We really believe that God has called us as Christians to be those who respect and learn from and desire relationships with people that don't look like us and don't talk like us or don't act like us. We can grow as a church in this, right? But even as I'm looking out, you all pretty much do look like me. But as a church, we want to grow in this. We want to expand in this. We want gender diversity. In other words, we want men and women serving together in this church, laboring together in this church. We want people of color and whites. We want age diversity. We want older people and younger people. We want to work together because that's what the body of Christ is meant to be. It's not homogenous. Jesus saves people all kinds of ways in all kinds of stations of life from all ethnicities. So the church should be a place where we can experience that. Is it hard? Absolutely. When you're dealing with people and working with people and loving people and walking with people that just see the world differently than you, that's going to take hard work. But we want to be the people that are willing to do that type of work because that's what God calls us to. So when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not speaking about racial slavery. That's what comes to our mind because that's what's, that's what's um, common for us to think about because of our history. But in the Bible, it didn't matter what race you were. The Bible talks about slavery primarily in terms of financial means. So if I owe you money, I'm your slave if I can't pay you the money that I owe you. That's what happened. If you got into a situation where you needed to pay back a debt that you owed and you couldn't pay it back, you became that person's slave. So a rich person could be a slave. A poor person could be a slave. It didn't matter. If you financially came into a situation where you couldn't pay what you owe, you then entered into a contract of indebtedness, of servanthood, of slavery to the person you owed it to. Does that make sense? And so what Paul is saying is, listen, you can't go on living as if you need to work off a debt that you owe. Why? Because Christ has already come into the world. He was born under the law. He was born of woman. He labored under the burden of the law for you. He died for you. He rose again for you. And he hoisted that burden off of you. You could never repay the debt of sin that you owed to God. It would crush you. And it crushed Jesus. So because he rose from the dead, he in a sense took that burden off of your shoulders and you're no longer needing to walk around as if you need to work it off anymore. Does that make sense? That's how Paul understands slavery. And so he's trying to talk to people who are by nature prone to live as if they've got to work off a debt. They've got to do enough. They've got to like 
Megan was saying, they've got to keep on running on the treadmill because if they don't, they're going to wipe out and make a mess of things. Paul's saying, no, that, that's not how God has called us to live. Jesus has removed that type of burden for us. So don't live as if you've got to keep on working off a debt that you couldn't pay anyways. Jesus has already taken care of that for you. And again, he's using the Old Testament to try to help us understand why that is. So again, he's making a contrast. Life under the law is a life of children under slavery. Life under Christ is a life of freedom. Two points he's making. So he starts first with this life under the law and the slavery that it relates to. Verses 21 through 23, Paul returns again to the story of Abraham. We've touched on this already. This isn't the first time we see Paul using this story. And you know the story. Right? What, what happens? What does God promise to Abraham? A son. Promises to bless Abraham and make his name great and make a great nation out of him and bless all the nations of the world through Abraham. Does Abraham wait on God for that promise? No. What does he do? Sarah, his wife, says, Here, take my servant Hagar and have a child with her. So we'll move this thing along, this promise from God. We'll help him out a little bit. And you can get Hagar pregnant, and we'll have a child through her, and then we'll kind of make this thing happen. Now immediately when they do that, tension arises. And that's the, the, the whole storyline of the Bible basically is that tension. Whenever we take things into our own hands, whenever we act in ways that seem to make fine sense to us and things that we do on our own that's in opposition to what God calls us to do, there's always tension. It always re- results in conflict. It always results in strife, not peace, not freedom. It results in bondage. And so that's what's happening here. Abraham and Sarah, in their own way of thinking and doing things, they tried to make the promise come to pass And Paul's saying they never could. In fact, if you read the story, go back and reread it again, you'll see that when God comes to Abraham after Ishmael is born and reminds him of the promise, what does Abraham say? God, I I already did this. Like, just bless me through Ishmael. I already took care of the son. I've got the son, so just make my name great through him. Bless me through him. Raise him up to be a great nation. We can take care of this thing. And God says, no, we're not doing it that way. I'm not going with plan B. I'm a plan A God. I promised you a son, and I'm going to bring that son to pass. And I know all about your barrenness, Sarah. I know all about the fact that you and Abraham are well past childbearing age. That's on purpose. Because I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourselves. That's what Paul is saying. Abraham and Sarah, in their own strength, couldn't bring Isaac into the world by themselves. And Paul's saying, okay, now take this one step further. When you live as if you can make it happen on your own, you're just like Israel. Because Israel, when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they came under the law. And we talked about this already too. The problem with the Mosaic law is it never led to their freedom. 
Moses himself never inherited the promise, right? He blew it. Before even getting into the promised land, Moses was told by God, you're not going in. You blew it. And then Moses told the people of Israel, you're going to blow it too. You're going to not hold up your end of the bargain. You're going to go into the promised land, but then you're going to forfeit the promise because of your idolatry and your disobedience to God. Other nations stronger than you are going to come in and they're going to kick you out of the promised land. You're going to forfeit the promise. So what Paul is saying, listen, in the same way that Abraham and Sarah in their own strength couldn't bring the promise of Isaac to pass, neither could Israel in their own strength by obeying the law bring the promise to pass. They had to rely on God to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Does that make sense? So by relying on the law, you're doing the same thing that Israel was doing under the Mosaic Covenant. You're trying to do for yourselves what only God can do through Christ. That's foolish. So the question is, why do you and I keep doing it? I was talking to an older man who's lived a lot of life, and he really still continues to struggle with regret. Regret from when he was even a youth. I've talked to other people who can look at the problems of their adult children and the, the situations that are going on in, in their lives, and there's this sense in which that they are struggling with some type of regret for things that they didn't do perfectly as parents or as fathers, as mothers, as just people individually. And what happens is when their kids start to struggle, they then, that compounds their understanding of regret, their experience of regret, and they somehow think, man, if I could have just done things differently, if I could have been a better father, if I could have been a better mother, if I could have been a better provider, if I could have cared more, if I would have been more gracious, if I would have been more stern, I could have fixed this thing. So now the situations of their adult children, the problems that they're walking through, have compounded their own sense of guilt and regret and shame. If I could have done better. How about this? How about when you're scrolling on Instagram and the image that you see is of somebody whose house looks like it just came right out of Pottery Barn. And the kids are all sitting perfectly dressed doing Pinterest crafts and everybody's happy. And the post says, and tonight's date night. And later on, so-and-so and so-and-so are smoking hot because they've been killing it at the CrossFit gym for months. And you're scrolling in your sweatpants on the couch, and you look around, and your living room looks like a bomb just went off in it. And what do you do? You start having this sinking feeling, this FOMO feeling like, I will never be like that. I'm missing out. Somehow, some way, they've got it all together, and I'm a loser. And there's this self-pitiful comparison that goes on, but there's the same sense, if I could only be better, if I could only be like them, if I can only have my life together like it seems like they do. And by the way, that's not reality. Nobody's perfect. But we live underneath this weight and this burden of, if I could only, if I was just, 
Because all of us struggle with this internal legalist. We all have it. It's a murmur. It's an internal murmur that most of us really can identify. It's like the one friend I was talking with last week who said, I can't truly sit down and rest because I'm constantly feeling guilty every time I sit down. I really have a hard time unplugging because when I'm sitting there, seemingly idle, all I think about is all of the things that I have to get done, and I feel guilty. Or the woman who says, I can only truly unplug and take a rest when I feel as if I've earned it. So if the to-do list that I've created, some arbitrary law that I've created, if that's accomplished, then I can let myself settle down. Then I've earned it and I can rest for it. I can sit down and enjoy myself because I've really worked hard enough to deserve it. Can you relate to that at all? That's just like living under the law, friends. It's some arbitrary list. It's some way of thinking. It's some if I could only. It's, it's, an, it's a pride issue, honestly. It's a deserving of God. And if we're not careful, we take that mentality to God and think if I could only be good enough, if I was studying hard enough, if I was obeying enough, if I was doing everything that God calls me to do, if I was a more loving person, a more patient person, then I would truly understand the freedom of Christ. And Jesus says that is totally false. Your, your relationship with Christ has never been about you earning or deserving it. The rest and the freedom and the joy that He has available for us is never given to us because we've checked off enough to do things on our boxes. It's never been about that. And whenever we live as if it is, we live, friends, as if we're shackled once again to the law that we never could get away from. We can never free ourselves from. That self-effort, that addiction to self-effort that it depends on me, that we all struggle with in varieties of forms and ways, that needs to be removed from us. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can remove it. Only when we understand truly that we are children of freedom, we're children that have been bought and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that burden is removed from us. Only then can we really stand upright and live as men and women who are free. Paul turns to this now in the second half of the text. He's told us that life under the law is life under slavery. Don't go back there. There's no freedom there. There's no freedom in self-effort. There's only freedom in Christ, and that's who you are. Life under Christ is a life of a child who's free. Life under the law is like living as children of slaves. He says in verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. What's, what's he talking about there? This is another confusing part in this passage. This Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem below. Paul's dealing with something that was very common in the Jewish person's mind. The idea of a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Just like God dwelt in the old Jerusalem, in the temple, his presence was there. They really had a hope and a future that God was going to dwell in the new Jerusalem with them and they were going to be there with him. So the old Jerusalem in slavery, Paul says, those, those are the Jews that are currently living with a veil over their face in Jerusalem at this time who did not believe in Jesus. They rejected him. So they're still loving, living under the yoke and the burden of slavery under the law. Paul says that's not who you are anymore. You're from the Jerusalem above. You're from your mother who is free. You're, you, you, you're citizens of the kingdom of God. 
And he takes those things from places just like he quotes from right here. Paul, when he breaks and quotes, rejoice, O barren woman, he's quoting from Isaiah. And that very text is where the Jews took this idea of the new Jerusalem. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not labor. What's he talking about there? Who's Isaiah talking to? He's talking to the Israelites in captivity, in exile. They're completely lifeless. They're hopeless. They were supposed to produce children for God. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were supposed to live by God's law and attract these men and women to them who saw their freedom and their joy and their peace and say, I want some of that. But they had produced no children. They were like Sarah. They were barren. And God is saying to them, in this land of exile, when you've completely blown it, where there seems to be no indication of life that you can't fix for yourself, I'm going to give you children. I'm going to bring forth a Messiah. I'm going to give Israel a son. I'm going to raise up Jesus. He's going to be born as a man. He's going to live. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. And I'm going to fulfill the promise for you that you could never fulfill yourselves. Just like Sarah and Abraham. God did it. God brought forth Christ. And how do we know? Because we're all here. We're all here. Jews, Gentiles, men, women. And how do we know that? Because the Spirit of God lives in us. And the Spirit of God has transformed our lives. That is a primary indication that this promise to Abraham has come true. It's fulfilled in all Christians everywhere at all times. So the promise has come to pass in us. Now the problem is, is why don't we live like that more often? Why is it so hard to live in that frame of mind? Why is it so hard to break free from the struggles and the distractions and the pain and the sin that just drags us down all the time? Because that's reality, Paul says. In the same way that when Ishmael was born, we're going back to Genesis now, track with me, in the same way when Ishmael was born and Isaac was born, Ishmael, the older, started to make fun of and persecute Isaac. Genesis 21. Paul's saying, in the same way that that took place, now fast forward to our day. I, Paul, as an apostle of the free grace of Jesus Christ, I'm being persecuted. Galatians 5.11. I'm being persecuted for preaching the free grace of God. And you, Galatians, you're being persecuted because now these false teachers have come among you and they're persecuting you because of the free grace of God. It's always been that way. And guess what, friends? It's always going to be that way for you too. Because that internal legalist that you have, There's an internal war between the flesh and the spirit. There's an internal war between what you want to do and what God has for you to do. There's an internal war between the flesh that wants to gratify itself apart from God's grace and the spirit of God that's saying, no, 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 no. there's freedom here. There's no freedom there. Don't be like Israel when they were delivered from Egypt, kept on looking back and longing for Egypt. Longing for, well, at least we had food there. At least... At least we, we had places to sleep. We're out here wandering around in the desert now, Moses. For real? Like, you were slaves. People were beating you and demanding things of you. You're nostalgically remembering your past as if it was all great. Friends, do you ever do that? Do you ever remember your past outside of Christ and somehow it seems like a rosy picture? That's not true. 
You were living apart from the grace of God. You were enslaved to sin. There was no way out. Was there some positive things happening in your life? No doubt there were. But you were on your way to hell. That's where I was heading. Remembering nostalgically your life apart from Christ is just like the Israelites remembering nostalgically life as slaves in Egypt. There's no freedom there. Don't return to things that will enslave you, whether it's self-effort or some addiction or something that is not going to create freedom in your life. And I know that that's harder said than done. But this is the only freedom that we have. It's only found in Jesus Christ. So when you're tempted to run, you have to stand firm in the freedom that he's provided for you. And this is one way I think we do it. I was struck this week as I was reading, rereading the story of Abraham and Sarah, and Hagar and Ishmael and all of them. You know, if you really slow down and start to think about the stories that are in your Bible, these are not great people. Like, they're not. When I read of Abraham and some of his foibles, like, he was not a great dude. And I read about Sarah. And even in this story, when, when Hagar gets pregnant with Ishmael and starts to look with contempt on Sarah, what does Sarah do? Well, she runs and starts complaining to Abraham. Starts yelling and screaming at him. And at that point in the story, I just want to say, yo, sister, stand down. Whose idea was this? It was yours. Can't you just see Abraham saying that? Like, yo, why are you getting your panties all in a bunch here? This was your idea. You told me. I didn't come up with it. You told me to go marry Hagar, get her pregnant, and we'd figure this thing out. And now you're yelling at me? Sarah's not a great person. Later on, when Isaac is born and Ishmael starts making fun of him, what does she do? Well, like a protective mother, they got to go. Don't make fun of my kid. And she sends them out to die. Like, that's where they go. Ishmael and Hagar go out into the wilderness, and the only reason they stay alive is because God saves them. I don't think Sarah is a great person. What really, really affects me, though, is that's not the final chapter of her life. That's not where the story ends for her. So when you read Hebrews 11, Sarah's there. And you know what the epitaph over Sarah's life is? She received power to conceive since she considered him faithful who promised. That's what's written over Sarah's life. Does that encourage anybody else? God's final word on us as believers is not all the mess-ups, all the screw-ups, all the ways we've failed. We're just like Sarah and Isaac, friends, or Sarah and Abraham. The story over our lives is not they were such great people and always did everything right. The gospel doesn't come to us and immediately remove all of our problems. No. When God looks down, he says, I see his faith. I see her faith. She trusted me. Are they messed up in some ways? Absolutely, but they're mine. They're my kids. And I love them. Not because of what they've done, but because of what I've done for them. They are free men and women. I love them. Are they misfits at times? Absolutely. But they're my misfits. They're mine. I've cleansed them through the blood of Christ. I've removed their sin from them. There's no more effort, no more working, no more slavery that they're in. I have completely taken that away from them. They are mine. And that's the banner that flies over your life as a Christian. Do you have things you need to change? Yes, you do. And so do I. 
But ultimately, that's not what defines us. What defines us is we consider Jesus faithful who made a promise to us. He said, if you call on my name and you believe in what I've done for you in my death and resurrection, you're good to go. You will be saved forever because of your trust in me. That's the epitaph. That's the statement. That grace is the banner that flies over our lives. And I think that's how we apply it in the day-to-day. When that internal legalist starts to rise up in you, if I could have, if I would have, if I were only, if this, if that, if I could just do this better, if this problem that I'm currently laboring under, if I could just figure this out, if I could just find a way around this, it's not about you, friends. It's not about you. You do not possess the strength nor the power to deliver yourself. You need to find your freedom and your rest in Jesus Christ. He says, take my yoke upon you. Take my freedom. I will remove the burdens from you. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. There is where we find our rest. There is where we find our freedom. It's only in Christ. Let me have the band come up. And let's sing to him. You know, it's an interesting thing to me that Christian freedom really is a paradox. Christian freedom is the only way to find freedom is to be a slave. Jesus says, come and lay down your life. Come and lose your life. Come and let me be your master. You be my slave and I will make you free. That's a paradox. Our culture will teach us over and over again that freedom comes when you be authentic to yourself. Self-authenticity, being me, being who I want to be, whatever form or fashion that takes, that's where you're going to find your freedom. That's where you'll find purpose. That's where you'll find meaning. Jesus says that's a lie. That's only more bondage coming your way. True freedom is when we find ourselves slaves of Christ. When we say, Jesus, I need you and I'm giving my life over to you. He reshapes us. He reforms us. He returns us to our sanity. He returns us to wholeness. And he he helps us to understand what it means to truly be human. What it means to be created in his image and walk in freedom that he's purchased for us. Freedom is only found in Christ alone. Let's stand and sing to our great Savior.